This is Joshua Bell with The Kilt and the Cloth. This was my sermon from November 21st, 2021, entitled Kerygma. I hope you enjoy. God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house like this with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But the godless are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be picked up with the hand. To touch them, one uses an iron bar or the shaft of a spear, and they are entirely consumed on fire on the spot. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about what the word kerygma means. It's a Greek word. Uh, we typically use kerygma in the aspect of descri uh, describing uh, like a prophet or a herald or the words that only come to a prophet or herald. And I, and I want to make sure that I, I am very clear about this. I'm not putting Greek with Hebrew uh, lightly. You see, kerygma was something that only God could put the words of their mouths on the tongue of the one speaking. Kerygma meant the words coming from their mouth was prophetic. Which to me is why 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 2 is a kerygmatic moment. David literally proclaims that God has put this on my tongue for you to hear these words. David. The king David. This is near the end of David's stories. <laughs> We've gone through all of his family issues, his, his tragedies, his failures, his victories by this point. We are told that these are the last words of King David. He himself says them. And it's like a prayer. It's like he, he skips over the life experiences from shepherd to king and zeroes in on the promise that God made to David. The king David recalls that critical element of his dynasty that he was chosen, that his family has been chosen by God through a barit, which is in Hebrew the word covenant. Now, I've used covenant in lots of ways. Covenant is a legal document that a bereath, when you read it in Hebrew, can only happen if you understand that if you break the covenant, you will die. 
and, I, and I'm not talking just dying. It's, it's like they have the right to kill you. That's what we're talking about here. That bereath, that covenant is something that God is making with David saying that when you do this, it's, it's much stronger than my word is my bond. Right? Because human words fail. We mess up. We think that in some aspect of our life, when we use those words coming from my mouth, this is the one that we always talk about, right? The phrase, I promise I will do this. It becomes a problem. That promise is not even close to the bereath mentioned here in Hebrew. What David is saying is, is that promise is to ensure his dynasty. Now, I, I always struggle with this idea to think of God in human terms, especially when we talk about Jesus as king. I, I, I struggle with this. I, I remember saying this in the 815 service, that I struggle with it because king to me is a human term that humans only use. But it's a place of power. And in their time frame, a king works well. The king could say, I don't want to do this anymore, and they would not do it anymore. He could say, we're going to do this, and they would do that. It's not a problem. Today's culture, we struggle with this a little bit. In this particular passage, we have this moment where there's an affirmation that shows the grand summary of David's life with the royal ideology at its core. At the very beginning of Second, First Samuel, you hear Hannah's prayer at the beginning. Please give me a son that I will raise to be your ultimate prophet. With the ending with David's prayer. With David's remarkable journey from shepherd boy to shepherd king. In my nerdiness, there's a lot of people in the world that I truly appreciate and, 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 and want to read more from. One of those is by the name of Walter Brueggemann. He is by far uh, like the superhero for Hebrew scholars. Uh, it's, it's when you go into a room that he walks into with his very elder statesman-like suit. He walks into the back of the room. Everybody stops what they're doing and takes in a gasp of air because whatever comes out of his mouth is just brilliant. And he writes that in this moment, the spirit is behind the success, that no one truly have success can be exalted or anointed and blessed apart from God. Such success as David's rise from insignificance to prominence is no accident, nor is it by the product of human machinations or clever planning or programming, such success is the direct result of God's decision to extend God's self through the raising up of such a leader. David can only live by decree or word, power or the spirit that comes from him. And ultimately what Dr. Brueggemann says is he can only live by the will of God. God's faithfulness, not human ingenuity or might, makes the monarchy possible, according to him. 
So I want us to think about these words. David's song calls us to reimagine our future as God's future. If we are so busy in the church realistically analyzing our institutional and societal issues that we fail to dream dreams or see visions, then we will perish, like David says, like the worthless ones. If, however, we claim that with David, the everlasting bereath, the covenant of God's promise, then the hope of our future will be based in a reality that transcends the powers of this world. Our hope can never settle for the realistic assessment of human possibilities. A just and faithful human rule is always rooted in the trustworthiness of God's promise. Think about that for a minute. You know, in the church, we have, we have two kinds of church language, and I would argue the third, but we're going to just talk about the first two at the front. The first one that we always talk about is the visionary language, the, the charismatic moment. That's that prophetic speaker that speaks on behalf of God to a congregation or to a group of people, and, and, and they say things that challenge a congregation to move from beyond the places that they find themselves seated in. As one scholar would say, that when you came into the sanctuary, you were uncomfortable in the pews because you had no idea where this comfortable spot was. Visionary language is not necessarily always uh, exciting. It's not always accepted. I mean, you can imagine David as he's leading the whole of Israel, saying that you all are going to do these things, and they're like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Visionary language is exactly what Jesus uses to move the masses into such a way that changes the world and reality that we live in. Visionary language, if I was to give it a definition, speaks of God working inside, under, and through in spite of ourselves to bring us to a new place. And this church has seen a lot of that. I mean, I, I, I talk with my colleagues all the time about what's going on in their churches and all this stuff, and I'm like, well, I mean, that stinks to be you. <laughs> my congregation looks at things and says, ooh, look, there's an object or an opportunity, and we meet that challenge head on. Always have. And I believe with my whole being that we always will. You look at just the things that we do, not just the basic ideas, right? Like we create programs and the needs for people in our community. Not from just my language. You see, in our church, we listen to many voices. The problem with this is that sometimes the visionary language comes from the least likely sort. It's like the 12-year-old coming to the church board saying, I think we should still sell tacos on the street, main street square. becomes a problem. You see a child coming to you and you say, well, that's a really great idea. What, why tacos? 
Well, I like tacos. Well, why are we selling them around the street square? Well, preacher said the other day that we needed some money for outreach programs. And I like tacos. Who doesn't like tacos? What if we sold tacos around the street square? Now, right there, that's that moment, right? That's the precipice that we find ourselves in the place of in church ministry all the time. And it doesn't have to come from a 12-year-old. It could come from anyone. Listening to the voice of God is, makes us uncomfortable. So then when you have yourself in that position, you find yourself in the other language of the church. The one that's earthbound. The one that's problem enamored. And so negative that a new idea can never capture or soar or even create imagination. And what happens is, is that 12-year-old says at the board meeting, I'd like to sell tacos around Main Street. And what do we usually say? Thank you very much. We'll take that under advisement. And then the vision disappears. It goes away. And you lose another voice that could have guided us into something different. You see, the beautiful part about David and his last speech is the nature in which he came from. Here's this shepherd boy that God told and anointed that you were going to be the king of Israel. And Samuel sees him, and he is so overjoyed that he takes the entire jar. It might not say that in your translations, but if you look at it in Hebrew, it literally says he dumps the jar of oil on top of David. This is the one God has anointed. And in that charismatic moment, he says, you will do great things in the name of God. David's a 12-year-old. And he's like, okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Dad, can I go back out and take care of the sheep still? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Here he is at the end of his existence, and he is saying, in that moment, God anointed me to be the leader of Israel. And in that place, we've done great things. We've done bad things. We hope that God hears our voice in the midst of all of it. How do we use our brain to hear what it is that we're doing in God's not name? And realize that sometimes in life it might not square with the reality of what we are faced with. David is speaking in visionary language. That God language that speaks a reality that soars beyond our earthbound perceptions. And then a faith-based language will move congregations and Christ followers in remarkable faith-filled, faithful directions that will challenge the status quo. There's a problem with this is both of those are using your words. I drive my kids crazy by talking about that all the time. I want them to use words. Oh, I don't want to do this. Okay, cool. Why? Because I don't want to. No, I want to know why. Uh, I don't really have a reason. Cool, now go take out the trash. 
You know, we, 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 we have these words, right? Like you, and we don't use them ever appropriately. But there's another side to this that we never really think about. I don't really talk about the food pantry from the pulpit because it feels weird to me. It feels, I talk about feeding the hungry, but I don't talk about the food pantry in essence because to me those guests that come to get food deserve the dignity to be treated as human beings, not as a lesson. Do you see where I'm coming from? There's a reality to that when people come to get food. They're coming because they need food. They don't need to be preached at or preached to. They're coming from a different place than you and I are. And even if we are in the same boat, it shouldn't matter who comes to get food because God says that we're supposed to what? Yeah, good, we got it. But those aren't my words. Jesus, as we kind of come close to this, Jesus fulfills that bereavement that David is talking about. He's from the lineage of David because of his mom, not his dad. We'll talk about that later. His earthbound dad, Joseph. Well, he's not really related, but we're going to say that he is for this moment. But Mary, he comes from the lineage of David. And all of a sudden, the covenant makes sense to the people. But to him, it's, it's not that he comes to be this lording over king. He becomes the unifier, the great healer, this, <laughs> this preacher, this teacher, this rabbi. challenge us to move us beyond an understanding that even our own body language is accepting to others. When we talk about Jesus being our king, our ruler, it means that we will follow what he teaches he moves us beyond an understanding of what humans think about. He moves us to a place where we find the presence of God in the kerygma moments that have been put upon your tongues and your own bodies. To be visionaries in the name of God. And that every human that you come with and that you come in contact with become children of God and you recognize that and if children of God then heirs of God and if heirs of God then heirs with Christ who gives us the ability to find our salvation our savior our Lord When you come to this place, when you come to a place of worship and you are in the presence of God, you find yourself paying homage to the one that gives us peace way past any of our understanding. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.